Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well as everybody trickles in and the faithful here on time. Good to see you. Glad, glad you're doing well and I uh, hope the, the rain has been good for you. I want to just give you a few announcements here of things going on. And so today, uh, Women's Book Club will, will meet up here this evening. And so this, this week, there are a few activities in the students and children's ministry. And so I want to uh, draw your attention to those. If you walked in and received one of these, all this is on here. So this is your cheat sheet. And you don't have to, you don't have to remember word for word what I tell you here. Uh, it's right there, but uh, we'll, we'll be having a Wednesday night training. So if you're a leader, if you volunteer to serve within the children's or students or preschool ministry this fall and spring, this Wednesday night will be a training time, a brief hour training time, and we'll, we'll be in here because there's so many of you, which is wonderful. Thank you so much. If you don't have anything to do, there are still sign-ups on the back, and we still need substitute teachers uh, across the board, and so if you're available, that is an area that is needed, and we, we can take you anywhere else, and so um, feel free to sign up in the back and then be here 5 p.m. Uh, this, this Wednesday evening, and so uh, then we will get started on the 9th of August and then hit full swing the 16th of August, that Wednesday night, and so training this Wednesday. Uh, the students also will have a worship time at 6 p.m. this Wednesday night, and then next Sunday evening we'll have a fellowship time, uh, and also uh, we'll have orientation for the sixth graders, and so move up Sunday will be here in a few weeks, and so if you are moving out of children's into students, uh, parents and student are invited to a time in the rock at uh, 5 p.m. To, to look over the year and to see what it's all about and to orientate a little bit and then all student families uh, are invited to come eat fellowship and have a time together next Sunday night so Sunday the 30th after our time together uh, Sunday morning we'll have a brief business meeting and also other things happening there are signups and information on the back table okie dokie Wonderful. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning and thank you for this time we have. Lord, in your presence and in your house together to be able to gather around your word, to gather around your completed work on the cross as we have such a brilliant and beautiful um, central reality to, to, sur to surround around and to that draws us together and makes us into one people, that you, you, Lord Jesus, have come and given yourself for your people. Lord, that we have one purpose and one mission, one gospel, one baptism by one spirit and one Lord. And so, God, would you, Lord, open our eyes this morning, fill us with your word and your spirit, that, God, we would see and know you. And all these things that we have talked about uh, happening, coming up, that God, you, Lord, would be with us. You would use them for your glory and the good of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we open in worship. Blessed be your name, the land that is plentiful. Dreams of abundance, well, blessed be your name. 
Blessed be your name, the found in the desert plains, the walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name, blessed be your name, with the sun shining down on me, and the world's all as it should be. darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away, you give and take away, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away, you give and you take away. Lord, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. Lord, blessed be your name. You give and you take away. You give and you take away. God, my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. 
hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. All around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. shall come with trumpet sound oh may i then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone all is to stand before the throne on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand all other ground is sinking sand. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All righty, you're welcome to stand. Stand standing. Remain standing, if you if you will, or you can sit. We're going to read uh, from Philippians four. We're going to close out the last chapter here in this letter, as we have been looking at it the last three weeks, and we're going to look at chapter two. But read now as we see the joy of the Lord expressed within His people, as as Paul is speaking and writing to this church encouraging them to to fight for unity within themselves because of Christ and because of what He has done for His people. So if you would read with me in verse 1 of chapter 4 in Philippians. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and pleading with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As for the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked an opportunity to act. Not that I speak from need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with little, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. For I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have revived everything in full, and I have received everything in full, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So in verse 5, the Lord is near. He remains near. He remains near to all people, but especially in very particular fashion to His people. To the church. This church in Philippi and this church here that meets in this building. That He is near His people to never be separated. So glory to God, pray with me. Father, I thank you so much. God, I thank you for this letter. God, I thank you that you have given us your scripture that we see you. That we see expressed through Paul to the Philippians. Through his his encouragement, his chastisement, his uh, request and imperative to see these people reconciled, to see the divisions mended, and then forgive one another that through this we see the joy and we see the harmony that You have provided into Your people that You have called out of darkness and out of death into the marvelous light of Your Son, Christ Jesus the Lord. And Father, help us. May we see and recognize in Your Word and in experience the peace that surpasses all understanding that guards the hearts of those Your people who trust in You. 
Lord, may we cast those things, may we cast our worries and concerns and anxieties upon You and find You near and find You able to carry us through them. Lord, may we learn as Paul learned to be content in all his circumstances where, whether he has surplus or nothing, that he is content that You are near and with him and will carry him. May we find this same in our lives. May we hear his example of faith and then receive that plea then to, in our lives to put the same faith at work and at practice to trust You. To trust You tomorrow. To trust You with financial needs. To trust You in our families. To trust You, Lord, with our future and what You would do. And to trust You with our very minutes. That, Lord, Your priorities would become ours. That Your mission and Your goal and Your glory would become what we live for and have then given our lives for, God. God, we thank You for who You are and what You've done and ask You, God, to lead and guide our time and be glorified, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship. And praise the Lord His mercy is more Stronger than darkness It's new every morning love could remember the wrongs we have done I'm missing all knowing he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore in our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the would wait as we constantly roam what father so tender is calling us home he welcomes the weakest the vilest the poor in our sins they are many his mercy is more praise the lord his mercy Of kindness, 
he lavished on us His blood was the payment His life was the cost We stood neath the death We could never afford In our sins they are many His mercy is more Praise the Lord His mercy is more It's stronger than darkness It's new every morn Our sins they are many His mercy is more Praise the Lord His mercy is more Stronger than darkness To every morn Our sins they are many His mercy is more Our sins they are many His mercy is more And our sins they are many His mercy is more Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life i know that it is I will 
not boasting anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. gain from his reward I cannot give an answer but this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom be seated. All righty. Let's go over our memory verse for this month from Lamentations. We're looking at two verses from Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, and so I want to invite you to look up at the screen, or if you have one of these nifty sheets, it's at the top. And I want to invite you to follow along. If you have memorized Splendid, I don't have it memorized yet, so I'm going to read it and work on it this week because July is almost over really soon. So follow with me. You ready? Yes, fantastic. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22, 23. Mm, steadfastness of the love of the Lord. We're looking at that this morning. So we are going to wrap up here in Philippians 2. We started last week in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we are going to hit 5 through 11 today. This is a high water mark of theology here in these verses. Looking at the incarnation of Christ and the ultimate exaltation of Christ as He will return one day and every knee will bow that exists. If there is a knee, it will bow in heaven, earth, doesn't matter where it will be, but will be compelled to humble Himself and herself before the throne and the authority of Christ Jesus the Lord. And so we are going to look at the story of what he has done, what Christ has done in verses 5 through 11, and try to, uh, try to look at it all, try to hit the high points. It's the, the amount of ink that's been spilled about these verses is unbelievable. And so we can't look at every word, we can't look at every phrase, we can't parse everything and pull it all apart and look at all the implications. And so we're going to focus on. Uh, on the meat of it and on what Christ has done and why that means that His people are to live in harmony and peace, forgiving one another and not seeking each other's throats. Which is what Paul is addressing. Is what we looked at in chapter 1, what we looked at uh, as, he, as we read in chapter 4, is that people are fighting. They are in conflict. This church is arguing with each other and 
that Paul is telling them this is not the people of God. This is not how His church is supposed to be. This is not what Christ has done for us, that we fight and argue with each other. But as we see in Christ that He laid His life down. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. He laid aside His rightful place of, of splendor and place to be served in order to become a servant and to serve all people. Thus, we have no place to argue for our rights if we are in the church and part of His people because our Savior brought us into this family by serving and giving His life to the uttermost that we would be forgiven of what we deserve to receive. The wrath of God due our sin. Thus, He has done this. Why are we arguing? That's Paul's words to the Philippians. And so, we, we will uh, we'll be looking at how the Gospel, how Christ specifically, the realities of what He has done, brings us into this fellowship, brings us into this community, and then infuses how we relate to each other. And infuses how we respond to all things in life, but especially how we respond to one another in a community, a local body of Christ. So, we looked at verses 1-4 through four and the blessings that God has given to His people and the good things that He has done and that therefore, as, he, as Paul says, if this is true, which it is, then regard others as more important than yourselves. Do not be filled and act upon empty deceit and, and selfishness, but serve other people. This general attitude, he says, to have among yourselves, to be unified in affection, to have the same love and sentiment and attitude and purpose, to have a mutual purpose and direction as a body of Christ. And so the, the people of God share a mindset that, that puts these differences aside and directs us towards a goal, towards the goal of the glory of God and the, the edification of the saints and the, the knowledge of God being to to everyone and before everyone in the world for His glory. And so we see that this purpose provides a unity and a unity in service. And so I think it was unclear last week in my presentation of, of those verses in that what Paul is saying is not that a unity in the people whitewashes everybody to look the same, to be kind of Ned Flanders, everybody is exactly the same, and there are no differences, and that's what unity means, and that's that's not what he means here. And that what he is saying to be of the same mind for the same purpose entails that there is a purpose that then we do not act upon self-interest. That then the people of God, their focus is not self. What can I get out of this? What can I get out of this person? What is my preference? I'm going to act upon my preference and argue that this song is dumb because I don't like it. It doesn't sound good to me. It's my preference that this person doesn't do this because it, it interferes with what I'm doing. And I don't like to meet at this time because it's harder for me. And, and I just I would rather do this other thing. And so the people of God are not to act upon self-interest and preferences, but instead sacrifice those things things in order to serve other people doesn't mean we're all the same 
It's fine that we're all different. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that there is diversity within the people of God because that diversity does not separate us if we are joined together by the blood of Christ and what He has done for us. It supersedes all those things. And it distinguishes the people of God from the people of the world. Because all we do outside of these walls, the people of the world, the way the world works is to provide distinctions that separate everybody and that then then what is diversified is really not diversified. You're just categorized and separated. And it just breeds contempt because everybody's out for themselves. That's not how the church is supposed to be. That's what he is addressing and speaking of here is that as Christ willingly and intentionally came, his people gather with willingness and intentionality that we will seek to serve each other as Christ has served us. And so we see in Christ's coming as he gave his life, as he took flesh upon him, and he went to the cross in order to redeem people that he did this, he took flesh to dwell among us. John 1.14 should come to mind as he, he walked among us and dwelt among humanity that he would redeem humanity. This is our essential hope that Christ has taken our place. And so Paul, Paul is, is glorious in this, in telling us that we should strive for what he has done for us. We should strive to share the purpose and the mindset at which Christ came to his people, to save his people, and then bring the gospel to the nations. Then if you go to 27 of chapter 1, we have this, this, structuring, uh, this structuring encouragement here in chapter 20, in verse 27 through chapter 2 that will help us kind of understand a little more of what he's saying. That he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or to show worth to the gospel that whether I come and see you or absent I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in that what he is telling the Philippians and you and me is that we as the people of God have to work together in in putting within us the truth and in meditating on what God has done and said that we would have the same direction, the same mind, the same activity in what we are doing, that the worth of the gospel and the worth of Christ would be evident. Not that we are meriting and earning the gospel, but the way we live, by what we say, by what we do, reveals and shows and displays to the world that is watching that Christ is worth us sacrificing our wants. Christ is worth sacrificing what we think is best for ourselves. He is worth sacrificing the rights and someone looking down upon us. He is worth all of it. He is worth the jettisoning of anything that we would hold dear in order to have Christ, to be known by Him, and to be within Him for eternity. He is worth it all. And so he's saying that that is, that is what we should be striving for and the Philippians should be striving for. And so here in verse 5-11, through 11, we have three things, three points that will structure kind of what, what we're looking at. Number one is that the mind of Christ in the Incarnation... To the sacrifice of Christ, which exalted the humbled Savior. And lastly, Christ's mind must be the Christian's mind. The church of God's people, we must have the mind of Christ. His attitude 
what he did and why he did what he did must become ours. It must be what we prioritize and what we value. So first, um, number one, the mind of Christ, the incarnation. Follow with me. Let's read chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So look at verse 5. The mind of Christ in the incarnation. We have here that Paul he moves to look at Christ as the means and example for the Philippians and for us in striving for unity and harmony. That He is the reason we are to seek to have peace among each other. It is not because things just go better and there's less blood spilt and teeth knocked out. Like, obviously, practically, yes. But the point is that Christ is the reason for it. Christ, because of what He has done and who He is and Him bringing a people together, therefore, it changes how we behave, how we act, what life is about and what we do. This verse is a bridge. It's a bridge into into Christ. His example is rooting His instruction. So if you recall, verses 2, verses 3, verses 4, He gives imperatives. He gives imperative instruction that do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. Both humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Then he says, do not merely look after your own interests, but look after the interests of others. He gives imperative instruction. This is what you must do. And he doesn't just say it because it's the law, but because of Christ. He ties it to the example. The instruction is tied and connected here to Christ. And so he is making that transition here in verse 5 that have this attitude, have this mind. So that word mind, if you recall, it's in verse 2. As he tells, he tells his people to have the same mind, this word as we looked at last week, it is a word that means focus, concern. It is thoughts for someone or about something. Essentially, is developing an attitude based on careful thought and being minded and disposed to this. That it is something that it takes intentionality, it, is, it takes effort, and it is something that is, that is attitude and volitional, and it entails desire. So it's a want to and an activity. Does it make sense? So having the same mind having the same, the same desire, the same direction, and uh, this, this attitude, this mind, which is in yourself, was also in Christ Jesus. If you notice, if you have the English Standard Version or the NIV, it looks differently. That it may say, which is yours in Christ Jesus, versus the New American Standard that says, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And that's because within the Greek, this second clause lacks a verb. And so the translators, they have to interpret it. Some of them insert, like the English Standard Version interprets it theologically. And so inserts the theme of in Christ that Paul, he talks about being in Christ frequently and is a theological theme that he comes to again and again. And so the English Standard Version translators, they insert that reading into this verse to say, it is yours in Christ. As in a shared mind that is attained in Him, which is true, but is not necessarily the most true to the context of Philippians 1 and 2. And so it's a word, it's a word of, of encouragement to be careful what translation you look at. Because every translation requires some interpretation. So every translation of Scripture, somebody had to look at the original language and bring the evidence and pieces together and then translate it into English because concepts don't always line up A, A, and, A and A equal each other. It doesn't always line up. One word doesn't necessarily mean the exact same thing in English. And so it's critical that as you decide what you will read and what you will trust, that you're aware of who is doing the work of translating the copy of Scripture into English. Does that make sense? There's different perspectives and different, um, different philosophies of those who address and bring about translations. And so it's important to be aware of who's doing it as much as it is the copy in front of you. So, this, this word, this, this verse of here, of which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul is saying here, is pointing out that the community of faith share citizenship with and in the Son of God, and that should be evident in them being together. That the mind that Christ has is to be the same mind that His people have. And it doesn't, it's not necessarily true all the time. In that, just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you're focused on the gospel. It doesn't mean that at all times your focus is on applying the word of God and living in a way that displays the worth of the gospel. That we frequently and often are distracted and focused on other things. And so as he tells us here, have this attitude that we, we have to use our minds. We have to meditate on Scripture. We have to be in community. We have to apply effort in order to align our lives and align ourselves in the, the character of Christ to behave and act and live as He does. So the mind of Christ follows here in verse 6 that says, "...who although He existed..." in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So first of all, the form of God, what does that mean? In the Greek, that word is morphe. And it's important, there are two possible words here for form. And one of them is, uh, is a term that means that it is transient appearance. It is appearance, it is existence that is influenced by circumstances. That is subject to change. 
And then this word morphe, which only appears another time in the New Testament, specifically has the meaning of an essence that is unchanging. So an essence that is not subject to change, that is not subject to circumstances. And so what he is saying here is that he, the Son, existed in the form of God. He has the essence of divinity. So Jesus is essentially God, unchanging. He did not leave His divinity. And so before the foundations of the earth, the Son was. God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He always has been completely content in and of Himself, sufficient in and of Himself, needs nothing, depends upon no one, and did not create because He needed worship or He needed anything from what He made. But He, out of the complete sufficiency of His love and His goodness and His power and authority, created and made, and the Son always has been. And complete harmony, complete joy within the triune nature of who God is, that He is God and always has been. And so that He existed is in the past tense in the English, but it is the present in Greek. He always has been God. So the Son, Jesus, always has existed and been God. He will not change. He does not change. But notice that as He says, as He presently is God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Does that mean that He laid aside His Godness? Does that mean that He in some in His authority said, well, we'll put this aside for a bit and I won't be God for a moment and I'll go do something else? That's not at all what this is saying. It's not at all what is occurring here because the Son is God and always remained God But that word regard, that word grasping, it entails a entails a gripping, a seizure of a title, of a place of authority, maintaining it, holding on to it, and not a release, of of keeping it and holding on to that without removal, without letting go. And Jesus did not do this. The Son held on to His divinity, He remained divine, He was divine, but He laid aside His place in heaven that He would come and take humanity upon Himself. See, the Son God did not become human and leave divinity, but He somehow, He released released His place to be served. He released His place of sitting upon a throne that all creation would serve Him in order that He would come take a place of service. In order that He would come take a place of serving others instead of this position to be served. Does that make sense? So He releases. He didn't grasp onto it, but He released that. He did not release His divinity. He did not release His authority. He did not release the essence of who He was, that He is God but he somehow, as he releases this, he then, he then takes upon himself humanity and servanthood in taking flesh upon him. And so, let's look at other Scriptures here to kind of bring this more to life rather than this one place. If you go to Colossians 2, verse 9, it says, For in Him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity 
dwells bodily. So the fullness of God dwells within the Son. It dwelled within Him as He was Jesus on earth. As He was a baby born of Mary, He fully is divine. The fullness of deity dwells within in Him. So He releases His position of prestige and He sets down to become a servant, to serve others. So God takes flesh in order to serve and He empties Himself. That word for emptying doesn't mean a laying aside of of authority and place, it means a adding within. And that it, the word means within this context as he says that he, he empties himself by taking the form. That we have this emptying in addition. So we have he, he comes, he steps out of heaven, and then he takes upon himself humanity. And what is distinct between humanity and God? There's a lot. But specifically, God is unlimited and you are very limited. God has no bounds. We are very bound. We are very limited. We are transient. We are here for a little while. You can't fly, which would be wonderful, but you can't fly. On your own, you, like, you can't lift anything. You can't point at something and make something happen like... God can do anything. We cannot. We are limited. And so he adds. He does not regard our quality with God a thing to be grasped. But he empties himself by taking the form of a servant. He takes humanity upon himself. He takes limited human life upon himself and adds it to himself. So we have this wedding. Somehow this wedding of the Son with complete human life. He takes flesh upon him to be with him. For what purpose? If we look at 2 Corinthians uh, verse 9 of chapter 8, it says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he's in authority, though he is Lord, he is rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became sin that we would be forgiven. That if we look at uh, 1 John 3.5, it says that He appears to take away sin. And there is no sin in Him. The Son comes to take away sin, and He is sinless. He is perfect. He remains divine and has perfect humanity wed within Him. If we go to 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He became sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That the Son of God came and took humanity upon Himself so that He could take our sin to be with Him that we would then, if we are in Him, become righteous. In that His divinity, that He is God, destroys anything impure, anything that is wrong, any sin that is upon Him is consumed by His holy goodness. Therefore, the Son takes flesh that He can then take sin upon him to destroy it and to pay for it. And so he does this. We see this staggering reality that Jesus Christ, that God himself would empty himself, would take upon his, lay aside his glorious splendor to take upon humanity to himself in order to serve us in every way, every form, and every fashion. It's a staggering truth. 
that Jesus did this. That God, out of His abundant love and His abundant mercy, came to be made just like you and just like me, yet without sin, that He would then take our sin to the cross and destroy it. God willingly did this. Jesus willingly did this, planned it before the foundations of the earth that Jesus would come to serve. And so as, as Paul gives this instruction to the Philippians and to us, he's not giving us this instruction in Jesus by way of example. None of us is Jesus. We can't embody Jesus and be just like Him and just morally take this example as the ethic of our lives. He's telling us this is the example set. This is what Jesus has done. Therefore, your life should look differently, but not in an effort to then appease God by following this ethical example. Does that make sense? It doesn't win us brownie points by acting like Him. Instead, Jesus came that we would recognize and see what He has gloriously done on our behalf that is finished and complete. So let's, let's continue. We see in number two, the sacrifice of Christ which exalts the humbled Savior as He is humbled and takes humanity upon Himself and He comes and gives His life. It says in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so he finds himself as he, he is taken the form, he has taken humanity upon him, he is a person that he would then obey and serve in the likeness of human flesh, that he in this, he humbles himself to obey. And he doesn't grow in obedience. That by becoming obedient to the point of death doesn't mean that he grows to learn to obey. But it means that throughout his life as we see, he is obedient leading to death. There is not a terminus of his obedience. But he's obedient to complete giving of himself in death and especially death on a cross. Jesus, He humbled Himself, He obeyed, and He obeyed the Father, obeyed the law, such that, such that perfect God gave His life on a cross. So when we see this, when we see this, there, there's a, a little aspect here of what it means to be a person. In that there's an aspect of what it means to be human in this. In that as a human, you are made to worship the Lord. You are made to know Him. You are made to trust in Him. You are made to depend upon the Lord. You are made to live for Him. Therefore, you will, be in, you will never be in a better position and more right and natural in life than you are in Christ serving and loving the Lord. Because that's what you were made to do. And we see that here as Jesus 
He is made a human, and it almost gives the, the image that he looks up and he says, oh, okay, I'm, I'm human, therefore I will obey and serve. I will serve the Lord in obedience. God has made us to serve Him, to know Him, to glorify Him. He's made us to worship Him. And so we see here in this passage, in the example of Christ, that one, we are to, we are to exemplify this humility and to be the same, that we are made to serve others and to serve the Lord as He has done for us. And so, why does Paul draw out attention here on the cross? He's obedient at the point of death, even death on the cross. And then he's writing to this church in Philippi. It's a Roman city. The cross is not a happy thing. Like the cross carries within the culture, it's a symbol of shame and humiliation. The cross held a stigma as the lowest form of criminal punishment, why in the world would he accentuate this in this high and mighty passage about what Christ has done? Why don't you say he's obedient to the point of death? Therefore, God highly exalted him. Why accentuate the cross? The lowest of low, Christ came He took the worst of punishments, the lowest, most shameful place, in order to undo the shame of sin and death. And that our sin is a shameful thing. And Christ took the shame upon Himself that He would upend what the world finds most shameful. And so one aspect is that Him undoing the shame, but also undoing what the world thinks is right. This is the worst punishment. No one wants it. And Jesus upends the kingdom of the world, flips it over to to bring this thing of, of shame and evil, of stigma, the lowest form of criminal punishment, and to exalt the Savior from it. That Jesus has taken the worst and He has then brought about restoration. He is purposeful in this to display this great an abundant love he has, God has for his people. Let's finish up 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. Therefore, because of this, God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Think publicly. Jesus did not remember, he did not leave his divinity, he did not cease to be the Lord. While he is incarnated and walking the earth, he retains this, but publicly he is known as the Lord of all. What was mysterious at one time, what was mysterious in the Old Testament as the saints of old looked forward to, the angels longed to look into who this would be as Christ comes, the mystery is no more. The Messiah has come. And Jesus is publicly known as the Lord, as the King. And so above every name has been bestowed on Him so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. This is not a metaphysical instruction here of there being heaven, earth, and under the earth as as placements, but this is an emphatic statement of every person, no matter where you are, no matter 
who and what part of history, every knee will bow before Christ Jesus the Lord. God has exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name of the Lord that no matter who, no matter where, no matter how much willpower you have to reject and turn away from Jesus, one day you will be compelled to bow your knee before Christ because God the Father has highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name. And so one day, everyone, you, me, all people, will bow before Christ the Lord because of what He has done and who He is. And so now is the time of faith. Now is the age of the church. Now is the time as Jesus has resurrected to sit at the right hand of the Father to await the instruction to return and bring it all, just, just finish it all, and He comes back to take His people to be with Him and wrap up history that now is the time where He has told and equipped His church by the Spirit with the Gospel and what He has done to take to the world that the world would see and know Christ. Therefore, now is the time to trust Him as one day that opportunity will be no more as what is by faith now will be sight. As one day every eye will be laid upon Him and then compelled to bow before Him. And so therefore, number three, the Christian's mind must be the mind of Christ. What he has done and why he has done it must be what we do in that he willingly laid and sacrificed himself to serve others, to serve his people. Therefore, his people should do the same. Again, we are not Jesus. We cannot pay the debt of sin to anybody else. That is not what Paul is saying. He is saying that just as Christ laid aside what He could grasp onto, what belonged to Him, and what He rightfully had to be served by all, He laid it aside to sacrifice Himself. Laid aside rest and laid aside peace laid aside his, his place of comfort in order to be uncomfortable, in order to suffer, in order to lay it aside, in order to pay the debt that was not his. He did not sin. He lived without sin. And yet, the sin of humanity is laid upon him and he takes it upon himself. That this example is how his people should behave that we sacrifice of ourselves in order to serve others. That we serve one another not out of a heart of self-preservation, and out of a heart of how I can get things for me and make things better for myself, but recognizing the great extent of what Christ has done for you and for me. Therefore, we seek to serve others and to give towards others. Because Christ has redeemed us. The goal should be that we see others redeemed through His work and through what He has done. I want to give you three passages of Scripture. They are not on the screen because I want you to have them. They are three passages of Scripture that are in the Bible that you hopefully have a copy of and are critical in looking at what Jesus has done and what that means in our lives. And I want to give you these passages that you would, that you would spend time there. That you would spend time in the Word because there's an aspect of this that requires us to meditate on what Jesus has done. I memorized this passage back in college almost 20 years ago. And I can't tell you how many times the Lord has brought this to mind. 
the Lord has called me out in my selfishness as I have, as I have been acting upon, like, I want to do what's for me. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. I, I, like, I want to be selfish. I want, to, I want to not do something that's uncomfortable. I want this person to stop doing this. Like, my right's my place. And the Lord has called me out to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How many times the Lord has used this text in my life to bring me back, to reorient my mind, to reorient myself in what am I doing? The clarity and the light of God's Word revealing my heart. And so it is so important, and that doesn't mean I always follow it. Sometimes, sometimes I fight a while and fight God's Word and what I know to be true because I'm sinful and a stubborn, very stubborn person. And so God's Word must take residence within our heart that it would dwell there, that we would, we would return to it, that we would think on it, that we would hear from Him and hear His Word and that it would change us. So Philippians 3, just a few verses over in verse 7 of chapter 3. We have this where Paul is saying that but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness which, co which comes from God on the basis of faith. First of all, we must trust in Jesus. Trust in Him. Trust that what He has done on the cross is an accepted sacrifice that will not be returned to. It will not be redone. redone. It doesn't need to be edited or revised. It is finished and complete Thus, He is righteous and good and shares that righteousness upon those who trust in Him. Who repent of their sins and trust in Him. Don't forget that. Don't fall into a rut of legalism where you think that it is by faith, but also I must do this in order for God to be satisfied with me. But instead, as Paul says, he jettisons, he throws aside anything that he counted as gain so that he would be found in Christ having the righteousness of Christ. Don't hold on to anything else but only the, the work and the merit and the goodness of Christ that on your behalf you are right before God because of Jesus. Not because of anything you've done or anything you can do, but it's because of Christ. And then let go of things in the world that you would find gain or that have no value in light of Christ. There's so much that we grasp onto in the world that we want to hang on to because we think this is wonderful and great, but in light of Christ, it's going to perish. It's temporary. It's only here for a little while, but He never ends. And the love He has for us never ends. Therefore, open your hands. Open your hands that, that, Christ, that Christ would direct and guide and lead you in those things and instead of just grasping onto it and saying, no, no, Jesus, no. 
willing to suffer the loss of anything because the value of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord surpasses it all. Colossians 3. Go to Colossians 3 just a little further on after Philippians. Colossians 3.12 says this. The whole chapter of Colossians 3 is wonderful, but verse 12 specifically, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so must you do also. In addition to all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ, to which you were indeed called in one body, rule in your hearts and be thankful and let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Forgive others. He tells us to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Because of what Jesus has done, because of what He has done on the cross in paying for our sin, we should forgive others what they would do to us. Recognize the weakness that we have before the throne of God and forgive others and be filled with the Word. It is essential that God's Word is within us and that we spend time in His Word and we are filled with His Word that He would direct us and lead us and catch us. Lastly, Isaiah 53. We'll start in in the last three verses of 52. Oh, spend some time here. These, as I'm sure you're all aware, you've heard this very familiar passage. But in 52, the last three verses is where this starts of the suffering servant, Christ who would come as Isaiah pins these almost 700 years before the Son is incarnated, before Jesus comes, before Christmas happens, that he pins these words that are then fulfilled succinctly and completely in Christ. And it says in verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were appalled at you, my people. So his appearance was marred beyond that of a man, and his form beyond the sons of mankind. And so he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Verse 1, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He, was, he has no stately form or majesty that, he would look, that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men. A man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he was afflicted, struck down by God and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. 
The punishment for our well-being was laid upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away, and as for His generation, who considered that He was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of My people, to whom the blow was due? And His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet He was with a rich man in His death, because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, for he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the plunder with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. He was crushed that our sins would be paid for, and that by His chastisement we would have peace. If you are in Christ, you have been made new by Christ. He has paid your debt on the cross that is no longer on your account. He has taken that sin that you deserve to be paid for in the wrath of God and He took it upon Himself and extinguished it. Rejoice in the reality of the finished work of Christ on the cross and recognize what it cost. That your anger and frustration towards others would be neutralized by what Christ has done for you. That you would be able to serve the unlovely. You would be able to serve those around you who have great need and give willingly because of what Christ has given for you. And if you don't know Him, this is God and what He has done on your behalf that you would be saved by His grace. That you would be restored and forgiven of your sin and reunited with Him as you have been created to know Him. He has sent His Son to save you and to take your place that you deserve that you would be forgiven. And this is true. Trust in Him. Turn from sin and self and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your gift of grace. I thank You for Your mercy in the cross that Christ came and took our place on our behalf. And Lord, I ask You that God, as as You have done this, Lord, would You, as You have applied it in my life, as You've applied it in countless others around us and in this world, that God in the lives of these people here this morning, that God, Lord, by Your Spirit, it would be true. That it would be true for one who doesn't know You, but that You would call to faith and call to trust in Your Son, Jesus, to be born again and given life. And so, Father, would You help us, Lord? May we forsake our selfishness. May we forsake the things that we hold on to in order to, Lord, 
Show the worth of what You have done for us in Christ and on the cross that, God, others would know You. May the mission of the church, God, grow in our minds and in our hearts that You being known would be our passion and desire. That individually and corporately, it would be what we are after that others come to know You and glorify You and see You as You truly are. And that God is that one mind, that one heart, that one purpose would consume these things that often divide us that Lord, we would, we would be pulling together and going the direction that You would have us. And that God, You would be sweet. And that God, You would be exalted and we would know You so much more. So Father, would You lead and guide us to respond to You And however you would lead us, that God, our hearts be softened by your word, and that God, we would come to you this morning. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So we'll have a time.